Well, if you remember from last week, um, we're in this, this teaching in Mark, and Jesus began last week because they were on the road, right? They were walking, and that's the way he taught his disciples most of the time. He would talk to them while they were walking from place to place. And actually, he heard them grumbling and arguing. And he already knew what they were arguing about, but he went ahead and asked them anyways and invited them in, and he said, hey, what were you guys arguing about? And they said nothing, but he knew that they were arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And so then he launches into this teaching, if you remember, uh, in verses 33 through 37, he launches into the teaching about who is the greatest. What does the greatest look like? What does it mean to, to be great in the kingdom of God? This kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed and that he's coming and he's establishing through his, his work of healing and restoration, but ultimately his work on the cross. What does that kingdom look like? What does it look like to be great in that kingdom? And he talks about serving. He says that the last will actually be first, and that the, the, the greatest in the kingdom it will be servant to all. And remember that he set them down, and I think we need to remember that. He, he sits down as a teacher with authority to begin to teach them. And so this morning as we sit here and we're a little chilly and we've got a lot of things on our mind, I want us just to sit and say, God, Jesus, you are the authority. What you say is the way that I'm going to shape my whole life. The things that are important to you have now become important to me. The way that you live is the way that I want to live. And so we're going to hear some hard things today. And kids, listen, there's going to be things that we talk about we're going to talk about hell. And normally, if you use that word, we're like, hey, you can't say that. But today, we're talking about the reality of what hell is. The reality of this place of torment and fire and like how that place is not a place you want to be. And so I would say, hey, listen up. Pay attention. This is Jesus talking. So we want to hear it. We want to hear how seriously He takes sin. We want to hear how serious He thinks our lives matter in the way that we live them so that we would point others to the truth of who Jesus is, to the truth of who God is and His holiness, and our lives would reflect that rather than reflecting the world, rather than reflecting sin. And so I pray that God would give us ears to hear today. That by the power of His Spirit, He would begin to work in us. No, I... I don't want to live that way. I want to live the way that Jesus has lived. I want to live like the kingdom. I want to have life that He has promised. And so I pray that God would do that in us today. Lord, we do thank You. We know that Your Word is true. We know that Your promises are true. And so, Lord, we cling to those today, even as we hear a warning, even as we hear a call to repentance and a call to belief and a call to trust even more in Jesus. God, as we hear today what the cost of discipleship is, that we would say, thank you, God, for paying the cost that I could be a disciple, that I could follow you. And then I pray that we would see that the reward of that discipleship, the reward of, of knowing our Savior, Jesus, is better than anything that we would give up. And we trust you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're... Verse 42... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
He had just got done talking about the little ones, right? And the children. Remember, as we began to see it, in verse 37, whoever receives one such, he grabbed that baby and he held that baby and he says, listen, if you receive this child, if you receive this baby, you're receiving me and you're receiving the Father that sent me. And so he's calling them to serve those who could not be served, right? And it was super important. He used the, the image of the child as he holds the child to show what it looks like to serve. And now he's saying, listen, he's probably still holding that child and he's saying, listen, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for you, it would, not worse, it would be better for you if there was a millstone. It, who knows what a millstone is? All right, Matt, you're going to answer. No, I'm just kidding. A millstone, right, is how they used to grind wheat or grains. So there would be this, this uh, circle, this, this big stone that would circle around, and then it would have another round stone on top of it, right? And as the two would roll, then they would grind up the, the grains. But what would have to pull that would be some sort of animal, Right? Sometimes it was, it was humans, but most of the time it was, it was an animal. So a, a donkey or, or a, uh, a horse or something would pull that grindstone so that it would continue to rotate and you would grind up the grain. These millstones were incredibly heavy. And they were, most of them were pretty big, but they were incredibly heavy. And so now this is the millstone that Jesus is talking about. And he's holding this child and he's saying, listen, if if you would cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if you had that huge millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. We have a hard time with some of this. We're like, man, that, we want to think that Jesus is this really uh, kind, and he is. This really loving, and he is. We want to think that he is all of those things, but we have a real hard time when he begins to to say some hard things. And today he's saying some hard things. Listen, if we would cause our brother to stumble, to walk in sin, it would be better for us if we were cast into the sea with this huge weight around our neck. Listen, sometimes we think, oh, but that just means death in the end. No, he's saying, the, the Greek here is kind of unique because he's talking about, no, if this was the, the everlasting position, if you were forever drowning with this millstone around your neck, that's what I'm talking about. That's how serious this is. It would be better if you were forever in that state than if you caused someone else to sin. We're really struggling with this. Like, I'm struggling with this because I'm, I'm calling all of us to this thing. But the reality is that God has always taken sin seriously. Jesus isn't coming in with this new thing and saying, now you need to take sin seriously. No, look at the whole Old Testament. Look at the way that, that the priest would have to come before God and the, the sacrifices and the, the ritual purification that would need to take place just so you could come and ask God for forgiveness and beg for Him to, to, to cleanse the sins of the people. And if that's not enough, we know the end of this story. We know where Jesus is actually leading His disciples to. He's going to the cross. So that our sin can be taken care of. This sin that is so real that he's calling us, listen, that you need to not cause others to sin and stumble. 
but he's also doing something about it. That's the beauty of Jesus. Like, he calls us to this, and then he makes a way for us to do it. Not so that we have to go out and do it in and of our, our own strength, but Jesus is preparing them so that when they see what Jesus does, they know that's how we get there. That's how we become what he's called us to be, by trusting in him. These little ones, we can, we can kind of begin to think, well, what are the little ones? Are they just children? Are they just those that are weak? Maybe new in the faith? Maybe some that are struggling? No, the reality is that we're all those little ones. John 1, 12-13 says this, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, if, if we are in Christ, we are the little ones today. All of us together, we don't have, we, no one stands higher than any other one. There's not big ones and little ones. All of us together are little ones. And so we look at each other and we say, listen, I don't want to cause you to stumble. I've already caused many of my little ones in my household to stumble today. That's just the reality of, of this sin nature that's within us. And yet God is calling us to greater holiness. God is calling us to greater trust. First Peter, he, he, he writes and he says, listen, be holy as I am holy. He's repeating the Old Testament where God is calling His people to be holy as He is holy. But we dumb it down. We dumb it down because we change the standard often. We don't make the standard the holy God. We make the standard this person that I'm looking at. And if I can just be as good or better than that person, then I'm pretty decent. And it's so wrong. Like we are all the little ones. We are all the little ones who should be encouraging one another to walk in the righteousness and holiness of God rather than causing each other to stumble. Jesus begins there and he talks about, listen, there's a reality and a severity to us causing others to stumble. But he doesn't stop there. He, he begins to kind of dissect the individual. And so read with me verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Three times he talks about going to hell. And so we have to begin to wrestle with that and say, listen, but the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is separation from God. And so Jesus is again stressing, like, listen, the, if you toy with sin, the ultimate end of sin is death and hell. We talked a little bit about it at community group, and I think we're... We're going to continue this conversation like, what is hell? Is hell the, the separation from God? Is it eternal torment? What are those things? Um, and, and 
hopefully none of us ever find out and we can ask God when we get there and, and he can explain it to us. But the reality is that there is a hell and there is a heaven. There is a, a reward for those who would walk in the righteousness of Christ by trust and faith in Him. And there is a payment and a penalty for those who would reject God and say, I do not need your righteousness. I can come up with my own. But when we look at the standard of who God is, we realize very quickly that we cannot reach that standard. Only one can, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. If it causes you to sin, he uses three things. He says hands, he says feet, and he says eyes. The things you do with your hands, the places you go with your feet, the things you look at and view with your eyes. Listen, he's covering all of life. Those, that's how we live. It's, it's what we do. It's where we go and what we see. And so Jesus is covering all of life and he's saying, listen, if anything in your life causes you to sin, you need to cut it off. You need to tear it out. I think about Randy, who, who's a nurse, and working in triage, and the idea of, um, she doesn't work in triage, but thinking about, like, what does that look like? What did it look like in wartime when someone would get shot, and their arm was shot, and they would have to take the arm, and people would argue and say, no, don't take my arm, don't take my arm, don't take my leg, don't take my eye. But the reality is that it, the only way that they would have life is if that thing that was wounded and was broken was cut off. Do we take sin that seriously? Or do we say, well, it can kind of hang out. It's not that really that big of a deal. Right now it's just a hangnail on the toe, so we don't need to take the whole leg off. Jesus is saying, no, listen, if that thing causes you to sin, any sin, then it needs to be cut off. It needs to be torn out. It needs to be ripped out. Sin is serious. Sin is serious and Jesus has done something about that sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's huge. Because in this daunting task of seeing sin and of not causing others to sin, and not sinning ourselves, we are completely and utterly helpless. But Jesus has come, and He has taken the payment of the sin that you and I commit. The sin that we cause each other to commit. He has taken that sin, and He has borne it all the way to the cross. He became sin for us, so that in His death, the payment is paid, so that we might have life so that we might be able to walk in the righteousness of Christ. That's huge. There's two things that we need to walk away from here with today. One is that sin is real. The other one is that Jesus has paid for sin completely. Done at the cross. So even as we go and we still wrestle with sin, as we still struggle with like... Um, Frustration as we struggle with anger, as we struggle with lust, as we struggle with all these different things that we can talk about. Pride being a huge one that plays itself out in so many ways. If we trust in Jesus' work, then that sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer can, can control our lives. We're still going to wrestle. 
We're still going to struggle, but we bring those things to the cross and we say, Lord, but you have defeated it. Sin and death and shame are done because of who you are and your work on the cross for me. The blood that you shed has covered over my sin. Your body that was broken has restored me and made me whole. But it can't just be this warning that says, don't do this. Because we don't, we don't ever do well with that. Just being told what not to do is never enough. But Jesus has given us the promise of life. Look, look in verses 43 through 47, because every time He says that, that you're going to lose something, He also says you're going to gain something. He says if your hand causes you to sin in 43, it's better for you to enter life crippled. He promises life. In 44, sorry, in 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame. He promises life. In 46, sorry, 47, he says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. The kingdom of God. Listen, every time he's saying, listen, you're... You're going to lose something, but you're going to gain even more. I promise you life. I promise you the kingdom. And the disciples are beginning to learn what that means. Because they're seeing Jesus interact with people. They're seeing true humanity, true compassion, true love, true service, laying down His life. And they're beginning to see, no, but if, if that's what I'm promised, I want that. I want to be part of that kingdom. I want to enter into that life. Why would I chase after sin and death? Why would I toy with those things rather than pressing into the life and the kingdom that God has offered me here and now? We have a promise of eternal life, but we also have a promise of a fullness of life and abundance of joy today because of the work of Jesus. And so the reward is given even at the same time as the warning is given. I love how Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life it's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. Ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered it up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Listen, I, I, I moved through that pretty quick. But it's in the notes, if you want to go back and read it. It's this beautiful quote. But the thing to pull out there is that it, it's costly because it costs you your life, but it gives you true life. We're all struggling, we're all warring to have life. And so often we're trying to cling to what it means to be the world and, and to enjoy the things that everybody else is enjoying. Right? To have the benefits that everybody else is having. Well, why do they not have to cut their arm off and I have to cut my arm off? Why do they not have to gouge their eye out and I have to gouge my... Because they're not experiencing life. 
They're chasing after a cheap substitute. But we have a costly grace. We have a, a life that has been purchased for us by our Redeemer. By the very one who has called us to be children and invited us in. He purchased it with His life. And so we have this promise. This costly grace cost God the life of His Son. Well, how do we live out of that? What does it look like then? If our life has been purchased and it's costly and it, and it means something, what does that look like? Well, verses 49 and 50 tell us what it looks like. <coughs> Excuse me. He just got done in 48 talking about what is hell. Hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Commentators really kind of wrestle back and forth with this one. This everyone being salted with fire. It's a, it's a tough place because right there he's talking about like the fire that is not quenched is hell. So is everybody everybody's going to go to hell? No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's comparing like what is the torment? What is the thing that makes hell horrible? And it's that it's, it's fire. It's going to burn. Right? But now he's transitioning into, well, what does the disciple look like? The disciple looks like suffering that's, that's changing us. It looks like how those things that would, that would burn us up begin to change us and refine us. And then he talks about, in verse 50, that salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <clears throat> As disciples, people who would say, I follow Jesus, right, Christians, we should look different, smell different, taste different from the world. We should have a saltiness about it. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. And so we, we, have a, we carry with us the Holy Spirit of God. That's powerful. That Holy Spirit is changing us and transforming us into His image. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you therefore, this is Paul speaking to the church in Rome, and he's saying, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, to be a disciple means you're going to be different. You're going to be different and you're actually going to have an effect on the people around you. Salt flavors. When you think about flavor, what is flavor? Flavor is changing taste. We add flavor to stuff to change the taste. Salt also preserves. It actually changes on a molecular level things. And so if we are called to be salt in the world, we're called to be different and to change, first and foremost, us, but also be changing those around us. And not like in the very beginning where it says causing others to stumble. No, we have an opposite effect. We actually cause people to look to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to put their hope in Jesus. That's what salt means. That's what it that's what it means to go out and be salty. 
to have a saltiness. But we lose that when we try to conform. When we try to, like we intentionally sometimes try to be the same as other people. We don't want to be different. And yet at a molecular level, we are changing. We are being changed into something new. That's crazy and powerful and good. Like, like, can we disagree that that's good? We want to be different. We want to be like Jesus. When we've seen Jesus, the way that He confronts sin, the way that He's compassionate, the way that He serves His disciples and He's so patient with them, don't we long to be like that? Yeah. We long to be different. And we've seen the one who is different. And we're praying, God, would you do that in us? Would you change us? Because you're the only one who can. I can't go out and try to be salty. If I begin to lose that saltiness, and that's what Jesus is saying, you can't get it back. But as we're changed and transformed by the power of the Spirit through the working of the Word in our lives, as we trust in the gospel work of Jesus, we become more salty. We become more different. We become ministers of grace and truth. We become peaceful people. Like you see that at the very end. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If I know that I can't work this change in me, but I see by grace God is doing it, I'm not going to make the same demand on other people. I'm going to pray and I'm going to come with a humility that says, God, would you change them too? Into your image. Will you change all of us? And, and can we be patient with one another? And can we be, be at peace with one another as you work for your glory and your good in our lives? You think about, um, you think about the church today and it just breaks your heart. The way that we treat each other. The way that we judge each other. The way that we cause each other to stumble and to, to provoke each other. With the vitriol and the, the anger and the, the, the pride that's very evident in, in particularly American Christian culture that doesn't leave room for disagreement but says, no, you're wrong and I'm right. There's just a brokenness there. But you look at Jesus and who spoke truth with compassion every time and you're just blown away. Like, can we be changed and transformed into that image? Can we look like people who live at peace with one another because of the work of Jesus? Can we be patient? Knowing that God is infinitely patient with us as He's working these things in us. And then, and then give Him glory when we see it. Like If there's any ounce of righteousness and purity and love and truth in us, it's because God's doing that. And we need to rejoice in those things. We need to celebrate that. At the same time as we look at sin and say, that's sin, and we, you're loving something other than what you've been bought to love, like other than what you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus to love. So let's remember those things today. Peace with one another. We saw what the greatest in the kingdom is the servant to all. Like if we're all trying to serve one another, there's going to be peace. It's when we begin to to not serve, when we begin to demand our own rights that there's not peace anymore. 
And so these things are tied together. This teaching of Jesus is tied together because of what He's done. Because He's purchased by His service, by laying down His life for us, the ability to lay down our lives for each other. This morning we have two calls. The first is a call to repent. Repent of where we've actively and passively caused others to sin. We talk a lot about like the intentionality required to follow Jesus. It's, you, you don't get to just do whatever you want. Your life has been bought. All of it. And so we have opportunities both in our active obedience and then just the passive ways that we go about interacting with one another. We have opportunities to point each other to Jesus and we have opportunities to sin against one another. And so there needs to be this repentance. God, we repent. I repent that this morning I woke up and I, and I had all of these other things on my mind and I caused my children to sin. Right? That I caused my wife to sin. That I caused uh, others to sin. Right? There needs to be an act of repentance in that. We're also called to repent for the sin that we've allowed to remain. For the gangrenous arm that we just leave there knowing that that thing is not honoring God. But we're too afraid to cut it off. We're too afraid to end our Netflix subscription or whatever it is that is causing us to sin. We're too afraid to exit out of social media. We're too afraid to to be disconnected. And those are just real easy ones for me. Because they're true. Like, like what am I doing that, that I need to cut off? It needs to be separate. So I need to repent of that. And repentance is not just asking forgiveness, it's also turning away. So it needs to look like cutting those things off. Where do we need to repent for not being different? For for being bland instead of flavoring. We try to blend in, and I was thinking blend and bland, and I, I, I didn't get anywhere with that, but maybe think about it this week and see if you can come up with something, because I think... We try to blend in and then we end up being bland where God has called us to be salt and flavor something different. So we need to repent. But on the same, in the same moment that we repent, because if, if we just say, I need, to, I need to change and I need to turn and do these things, we welcome self-righteousness or condemnation. So while, while you repent, at the same time, Believe. Repent and believe. Believe that Jesus has made a way for us to live differently. He has made a way for us to be right with each other that doesn't depend on us and our, our working it, <coughs> working really hard. It's a way that by the Holy Spirit of God that's in us if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's working it out in us. We need to believe that Christ has defeated sin. That sin no longer has power over us. Because that's a lie that the devil would want us to believe so that we perpetually end that sin. But if this word is true, then Christ has defeated sin and it no longer has power over those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to believe that He is purifying me and others. Right? It's not a singular work. Because for, for Chris and I to have right relationship, I have to believe that Christ 
is making me holy and he's making Chris holy. And as he's doing that, he's creating in us peace and love towards one another. The ability to encourage one another, to call out sin in each other's lives. And finally, we need to believe that this kingdom that he's promising, this life that he's promising, is better than what I'm trying to hold on to. The thing that I'm repenting from and giving up and asking God to take from me does not compare to the life and the kingdom that he's promised me. Like, we don't know what that means. We're, we have glimpses, and we begin to see Jesus, and we're like, wow, that's amazing, that's beautiful. But one day we're going to see, and we're going to be like, why did I ever hold on to that other thing for as long as I did? It's not worth it. It pales in comparison to the truth and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. So this morning I pray that we would, as a people, repent and believe today. God, we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that you've given us just a, a, a taste, a glimpse of both your seriousness about sin, that it, that it cost you your life. Lord, and you've given us the, the picture of what life looks like and what the kingdom looks like, Lord, and we pray that you would stir in us a longing to, to know you to trust you and to, to tear out the sin in our lives. To cut those things off. To gouge those things out so that we would have you. So that we would have life. God, I pray that you would stir uh, our affection for you, Lord, because I, we believe that out of the heart, Lord, out of our love, Love for this world will lead us into more sin and love for Jesus will lead us into holiness and righteousness. And so Lord, I pray that you would stir our affection for you today. That we would love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the same vein and in the same token, we would love our neighbor as ourself, Lord. We thank you that we can do that because you have made a way for us through your gospel work on the cross. Thank you for making atonement for our sins. Thank you for purchasing a very costly grace for us today. We praise you in your name. Amen.